Welcome to Notes from the Field, brought to you by Noeo Science. Well, Gordon, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? Doing great. Good to, good to be here with you. Good to be here with you, as always. Yeah. The sound booth is a little cooler today. <laughs> we won't be basting in our own sweat. It is. It's a little cooler in here. And so today uh, we're talking about a couple of different things and hopefully they'll come together in a cohesive way. Mm -hmm. It occurred to me as the school year's begun and starting to get the rust off as a teacher and, and starting, uh, starting with new classes and talking an awful lot uh, in my physical science class, we're talking an awful lot about the importance of measurement. Right. And so I thought, hey, that, that'd be an interesting uh, conversation to maybe connect that to some of our uh, projects we've been involved in in the field and just to talk about the importance of measurements and, and measuring instruments in when you're out in the field doing uh, wildlife uh, yeah. biology. Yeah. This is uh, a good throwback for me because since I've been at NSA, we're, you know, I've been teaching my biology courses, but I'm not training them to be biologists. And so Although we do some weighing and measuring a little bit, it's mostly natural history in the sense of learning to hone your observation skills, mm -hmm. which is great. And I think for the layperson who wants to cultivate an interest in wildlife, measurements aren't super important unless you're wanting to get nitty gritty and get into the science, do honest to goodness research, then yeah. you need to start measuring. But if you want to be a birder and, you know, identify birds and, you know, what's at your feeder, what's this snake, what's it, you know, it's mostly ID stuff. The measurements aren't as crucial, but we, you know, there's going to be a subset of our listeners that want to go into the sciences. Yeah. And, and that means it's not going to be qualitative. It's going to be quantitative. Yeah. And that involves equipment, technology, measuring tools, whether it's to weigh or measure the length or measure the humidity. Yep. All sorts of things. Yeah. So, all kinds of, of. Or even just technology of catching and marking and recapturing and all of those things. Absolutely. So kind of, kind of instruments instruments to help us uh, learn more about certain creatures and then some uh, some of those are going to be more more explicitly measuring devices and so um i i i've loved the opportunity to get more hands on that and that's often what the science does i loved loved birding uh, but when i finally got to actually go out and do some getting birds in the hand and doing measuring and and even putting markers on different individual creatures so you could follow up on or track that creature over time really gives you, uh, I would say, a deeper understanding of what, their, of what their daily lives are like. And so that's one of the neat advantages. You can actually get in touch with your state wildlife agency and even get permitted to do some of these things independently. And so if that's something you're interested in, whether it's banding birds or, or, or capturing and releasing other types of creatures to monitor them, talking to your state fish and game, or if it's uh, natural resources or ecology departments, a, a good place to start. Right. And so uh, I've, I've spent a fair bit of time mostly marking, in some way, marking birds. 
to be able to identify between individuals. And so the, the traditional approach to that is to, uh, to capture a bird. Right. It could be on the nest and you, and you go over and, and grab that bird up. It, oftentimes, uh, the easiest way to mark a bird for identification is when they're unable to fly. Right. Of course. And so to, uh, to grab those little nestlings and, and put a ring on their leg, we call that uh, bird banding in the U.S. They call it ringing in the U.K. And uh, there's a little number that has been imprinted, uh, stamped onto that metal uh, ring, and that, uh, that bird could be tracked. If, for example, if someone else happens to uh, put up a net and catch a bird four years from now and has a ring on it, they can right. report that number, and we can, we can identify that bird and, and figure out where it's been. So uh, I would say in its elementary uh, or the, the most easy application of bird banding is just to track their movements. Right. Where's this bird been and, and where, where has it gone from, from, from that original location? So explain the mist netting a little bit. Yeah. So mist netting, there's a, this is a way to capture to adult catch the birds. Bird it's not like you walk out and grab yeah, it. So. Yeah. This is, so uh, think of, think of kind of a fishing line um, thickness uh, net, but it's, it's a full mesh net and it's connected between two long painter's poles. And you can extend those painter's poles up to, say, 20 feet or so. And that net has little pockets. Uh, it's strung across in, let's say, uh, two-foot sections. And at the bottom of each two-foot section, it loops up. So, so that, that any if, bird when that, it catches, it doesn't yeah, fall to the ground. It hit, hits it the pocket. It kind of just slides down into that pocket. Okay. And so the, one of the studies I was involved, involved in using mist nets uh, was a Cooper's Hawk study. Uh, in central Wisconsin, uh, working for my ecology professor, Bob Rosenfield. And we'd go out in the early morning. We identified the locations where we heard calling uh, Cooper's hawks and we would find nests. And then we would attempt to miss net uh, the adults. And the way we would do that would be by playing a great horned owl vocalization in the proximity of the net. And the Cooper's hawks are very agitated by owls. Right. By, by seeing them or hearing them because owls pose a threat to their young. And so right. the Cooper's hawks would fly and hopefully we set that net up in the right place. You want a backdrop of trees or shrubs. So, so they the can't net, see the net is very well. Yeah, exactly. The net kind of blends in. It disappears. So it's kind of like a bird uh, spider web. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a spider web. They get trapped a in a spider web. web. <laughs> we spin the web and catch birds with it yeah, instead of. Well, and that's Spiders funny that you say insects. that. Right. I think most of the acts that we do is mimicking some other type of nature, right? Right. And so these, the Cooper's hawks hit that pocket and we go and grab them up. And we, and we, one of the things we typically do with raptors is you want them to be calm. You want to reduce their stress right away because most animals, when they're, when they're captured, they stress out. Right. And that can be bad for their health. And so uh, we had these old cans that have a kind of a screw on lid. And then you slide the bird right into the can. Uh, it's long enough. It's maybe its feet are sticking out. Its wings are folded in. It's in there nice and tight and it's dark and the bird just calms right down. Huh. And then we, we could That's take some measurements of that they're bird not, as well. Like they don't panic because they're claustrophobic now? No, and it's so tight. They really can't even spread their wings out. And so their wings are folded, but it's not, it's not uh, forcing their wings into a position where it would damage them. And so they just right. calm right down. Wow. Yeah. So how do you know they calm down? The heart, they, um, well, that's they measure a great, heart rate? No, that's a good point. It, that is an assumption. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And so uh, if the bird is not acting agitated, we're assuming it's calmed down. Okay. It could be that I'm they- I'm sure somebody's measured the heart rate while they're in probably. a Probably. Yeah. And there's there's probably some, some uh, you know, high blood pressure Cooper's hawks out there. Right. So <laughs> yeah. hopefully we don't get that one. And so that allows you then uh, to go into any, take that can anywhere. You could even uh, take it over to the car or inside if it's cold out, which helps alleviate stress too. And then take the bird out, hold it, and use some other instruments to measure yeah. uh, something like its wingspan. Okay. So its what are the main ma- measurements on birds? You do wingspan. What so else? wingspan is a really big one. Overall Part, health. Parcel length. Or... Yeah. So I, I be- trying to remember this. I believe that's right. Tarsal length. Uh, you're looking also for fat content on the chest. And usually if you blow on the chest feathers enough, their skin is so thin. You can actually see a, a good amount of the fat beneath that. Wow. Uh, skin on their chest and maybe also uh, get a look at a couple of feathers, tail feathers, get mm-hmm. some quality, qualitative types of measurements on the body feathers. And then you're going to sex the bird based on plumage. Right. And you might even attempt to age it. Um, and juvenile, the rule of thumb with raptors like those birds is their eye gets darker and darker red as okay. they age. And so you could, uh, you could say they're under three years or, right. or three plus. So what if there's not any clear sexual dimorphism in the birds? And sexual dimorphism, for those that aren't this fancy phrase, is that the male and female obvious plumage differences. And sometimes the male and female have very similar plumages. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there still, you know, minor plumage differences or do you have to look at something else? That's a great question. I'm trying to think of the, if I've been, been involved in any bird study where we, where we needed to sex the birds or if we did that. Mm-hmm. All the other birds I worked with, there was sexual dimorphism. And so it was kind of easy. This is a female, this is a male based on plumage differences. Right, right. No, that's an excellent point. Another way you could get at least indirect evidence for the sex of the bird would be based on vocalization. Okay. And so if you know that that bird vocalized and it was the most likely the male. Right. That's a good question. Yeah. And the, again, you did research on birds. I did research on box turtles. And we did have some sexual dimorphism be- between the, uh, the male and female. Yeah. And the male has a, uh, usually, I mean, these aren't all hard and fast, but usually the male has a bright red iris. Okay. The females can have a reddish or reddish brown but it's usually not a bright red like the males. The males, the turtle shell, they do all have hump shells, but the, the male shells tend to flare out like a bell bottom more than the females. And the other real clear field character is that the males have a concavity, a very clear, at least the adult males have a clear concavity on the plastron, which is the lower shell. The ventral side. The fi- females are pretty flat on the belly. Yeah. So those are good field markers. We, you know, I um, did a lot of measure, well, not a lot of measurements on the box turtle, but I, I had, I actually had tree calipers. Yeah. And tree calipers are sort of a, a way to measure the diameter of a tree. And it usually goes up to 40 centimeters. Uh, so not huge trees, but they were great for measuring turtle shells. And so I would just open up the calipers and uh, measure the carapace length. Okay. 
which is the upper shell's length. And so you didn't have to worry about the curvature because you the caliper is bracketed. And so you put one edge of the caliper on the front edge of the shell and the other edge on the back, and then you'd measure it in centimeters or, or millimeters. Yeah. And you could do a carapace width and a carapace height. And it was pretty easy because turtles aren't squishy. You know, they're, they've got hard shells. So you yeah. got really clear measurements. Yep. Yep. Your certainty is improved there. Certainty is better than <laughs> say a snake because <laughs> snakes are always squiggling and it's. Or an earthworm. And if you're stretching a snake to get it straight so you can measure it, you know, they're tense. I remember once when I was an undergrad and um, the the professors were measuring rattlesnakes and I was holding the bag. You're left holding the bag. <laughs> I'm left holding the bag. Sometimes <laughs> they, after they did a measurement, they would lower the, the rattlesnake into the pillowcase, which I was holding, you know, and sometimes there was a little play in the neck, like, <laughs> uh, so this head's sniffing around, you know, with his fangs wiggling around and. I'm I'm making sure that my feet are well planted and I'm not going to trip and as they lowered it in. But when they were measuring the rattlesnake, they would be holding its neck and holding its tail and pulling to get it straight. And the, t- the snake was really tense and they would kind of, I mean, they weren't, the snake was fine physically, but they would pull and it was almost like snake chiropractic yeah. because- <laughs> <laughs> They'd be pulling on it, and all of a sudden, you'd hear this. Oh, no kidding. All of the vertebrae, finally, it just sort of gave up tensing, and the vertebrae would all pop, and then a couple inches would be added on to that the measurement. That is fabulous. Now, I don't know if that's an accurate measurement. As long as you do that to all of them. As long as you do all of that, <laughs> it might be sort of a generous measurement, but yeah, it was just funny. It sounds like Baloo would, the uh, bear and Ka the snake here. But turtles, you didn't have to worry about, you know, getting a different right. measurement due to whether they were tense or l- relaxed. Yeah. So the other, yeah. Do you have any other yeah, examples? Yeah. So uh, loons, uh, when we would study loons, monitor loons, uh, we would find their nests before, before the eggs were laid. These loon nests are used year after year after year after year. And so um, they're mapped and uh, Harpar was just using the infrared vegetation maps to find them. And being new to an area. And so once you found the, the nest and then waited, for, always two eggs were laid. And so it's a really easy marking here. And what we were looking to monitor there was really distinguishing between the individual chicks. And so we would put a white spot of paint on the back of one of the loon chicks mm. so we could distinguish between them. Okay. And that way we could tell who's getting fed and how often. Okay. And so it's not so much measurement there. Would we you were, be we, weighing the chicks to we see would, who? We would weigh and measure, uh, well, we wouldn't weigh the eggs. I take that back. We'd measure the eggs with calipers. So we okay. get a, we'd get a, a length and a, and a width on the eggs. Okay, same when I was uh, measuring turtle eggs. Yeah. Width and length. Width and length. And, and um, I'd weigh them. You'd weigh each egg also. Yeah. Did you use a spring balance or what'd um, you use? Yeah, spring balance, the ones that dangle. Yeah. And I'd usually... Have usually a, a Ziploc bag that I would hook to the the little uh, alligator clip, and then uh, you can zero the bag. So the bag was at the zero grams, and then yeah. put the egg in the bag, and then you'd measure how many grams the eggs. Oh, were. that's great! 
You know, one thing that I love about field biology is just the ingenuity of the field biologists oh, yeah. who come up with, the, they just make up their own equipment. Here's something cheap. I can buy all this gear at Walmart and make something. Yeah. One of the one of the pieces of equipment one of my uh, field bosses made was a mirror to look into the nests of birds that you could not reach. And so he attached a little oh, mirror wow. to the top of a painter's pole. And so you could extend it up and look at a nest that's out on the skinny branches, 25 feet up. Wow. And count the eggs. That's great. And then you, or you could say, oh, one is hatched yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a lot of these instruments uh, are a bit more qualitative, but yeah, um, yeah ingenuity well, still. Yeah. You know, and we're not limiting our discussion to measurements, whether it's weighing or length, width, height, but also just instrumentation. Mm -hmm. You know, birds, you can, I don't know what kind of transmitters you put on them you you talked about bird banding so you can mark them with the band and then if they migrate other ornithologists somewhere else in the world can i guess there's communication so yeah. if it flies all the way to south america are, are the ornithologists talking to each other right and so really it's kind of a probability experiment right you band enough birds you're someone's going to see them but for more real-time data what we would do is we'd color band the chicks and so they'd all get a metal band too, but then they'd also get a sequence of two colored bands on each leg. So we could identify between, uh, let's say, all four of the oven bird chicks in this one nest. And so each one of those would have a, a name or a, or a number, and they'd each have like, one bird would have a white and black plastic band on their left leg and an orange and blue colored band on the right leg. So we could, we could distinguish between all four of them. And then monitor the behavior as they as they go from nestling stage to fledgling stage, at which take uh, you know hatching to being able to fledge is usually I say two or three weeks, but then they're going to be fed by their parent for up to a month. Mm -hmm. So we'd monitor that behavior and see you know are parents favoring one over the other, are the parents feeding the cowbird only, and not mm -hmm. these other chicks and and oh, that yeah. that type of observation. Yeah. The turtles, the numbering system was, we didn't ban them or anything like that. We would uh, mark their shells and I'd have a little triangular file, thin, almost looked like the size of a chopstick, but it was triangular in cross section, but like yep. a metal file. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the scutes, which are the rectangular plates or square plates on a turtle shell, mm -hmm. there's marginal ones called marginal scutes and uh there's a numbering system there's different numbering systems based on which author you look but you know my major professor had a numbering system for the marginal scutes mm -hmm. now on box turtles you had i can't remember the the numbering system exactly but each scute would have a certain numerical value okay some like one and a 10 and a hundred and uh, a three and a 30 and a 300. And so doing different combinations and putting a nice triangular notch in each skewed, like if the first one, I just notch number one. But if it was um, the turtle, so I wouldn't have a nine skewed. Okay. But I'd have a five skewed. And I'd have a four skewed. Okay. So I'd notch a four and a five, and that would be a nine. 
and that number corresponds with a certain And you skew can mark way up somewhere on that turtle shell. Yeah. And each so skew had at its the own pattern, number. E- looking at the pattern of like if I saw this skewed had a one notch, that was one. So I had a, a one, a ten, and a hundred. I had two, twenty, and two hundred, three, thirty, three hundred, and four, forty, and four hundred skews. Anyway, so any combination, usually up to no more than four marks on those skews, doesn't hurt the turtle at all. Do you have to have it in hand to identify it or can you? Yeah, you, you hold it up and you look you, and, you know, I'd done it enough so I knew the numerical value of each skew. So yeah. I could just add those values, look at the, where the hot notches are, add those values up and I knew the number of the turtle. Oh, that's neat. And I'd mark it down in my data book. And so, okay, this is turtle. I had marked 144 roughly in my- Total turtles? Yeah. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. That's a great and sample size. And I would name size. them all too, Ooh, but I, did they, you? Every, everybody had a number. Oh, that's fun. And uh, I was really tracking the females, but I would be marking the males as well so that I could get a sex ratio. Yeah. Is it a one-to-one sex ratio or was I getting more females than males or yeah. vice versa? But then the other instrumentation I used is radio telemetry. So I yeah. buy these- uh, radio transmitters that were really small and they were by wildlife materials. I don't know if they're still in business, but wildlife materials would, I purchased these transmitters, I think it was 140 a pop. And I would clean the shell really well, sort of score it up. So make it a little rough with Mm -hmm. the, the file and then get epoxy glue and then glue the transmitter onto the marginal scutes on the right rear, okay. right rear of the turtle shell. And there was usually about a six inch antenna coming out of the transmitter, but the antenna was sort of dragging behind it. So it didn't impede the turtle or it was short enough that it never would, you know, it was a thin. Like a second tail. Plastic covered. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a little, like a short tail off to the side and it wouldn't, it wouldn't be any any hindrance at all. And each radio transmitter had a frequency. And so I'd have a receiver around my neck. So if I wanted to hunt down a particular turtle in this big section of forest, I'd, I'd turn on my receiver and tune in to this turtle. This turtle's frequency was thus and such. And then uh, my H antenna, which is a, a directional antenna, if I was pointing in the right direction, I'd pick up the signal and if it was like 200 yards away, it would be a weak signal. But if I turned the wrong way, it was like playing hot and cold. Right. So if I turned the wrong way, it would be a weak signal. If I, if I was pointing at the turtle, and so just by rotating, I could get a bearing on which direction to walk. And then as I'd walk, the signal would get stronger. And if I was starting to get off, it would get weaker. And so, and then as I was getting closer, it was starting to get loud regardless of where I was pointing. So I'd turn the gain knob down mm-hmm. and start getting a, a finer distinction so I could get a, a bearing on it. Finally, once I was like on top of the turtle, but still couldn't see it, and I had the gain turned all the way down and I was still getting a strong signal. And I was like, I'm like within a one stride of the turtle, but yeah. it might be under the leaves. Right. 
And so I would just look around myself. Then it's hide and seek after that. And hide and seek. But usually I'd see a little bulge in the leaves and then I'd flip the leaves off. And there you are. Gotcha. Oh, that's neat. But it's neat to be able to find this small turtle in this big uh, wooded area. Yeah. And you can hunt down that turtle and find it. I love it. And then you can get data, whatever data you need from that turtle. Well, and I think part of that process of getting good at using the instrumentation is can really become such a joy as well. Yeah. And it can take some practice. I'm sure it was tri- tricky to use that telemetry at first. I learned how to do it. Uh, one of my fellow grad students was doing similar research up in the Shenandoah mm-hmm. with wood turtles. Okay. And so early on in my research, he was farther on in his PhD research. And so we went out one day with the grad student and my major professor, and he showed me the ropes on how to do telemetry. And so we'd hunt down the turtles and take down the data, and I learned how to do it. And then I could do it with box turtles down in the Blue Ridge. That's excellent. So it, it, was, a, it was a great experience to to actually do field biology yeah. uh, and take down. I sort of miss that. I mean, I, now it's mostly just natural history and teaching my students to love nature and learn about nature, but it's, I sort of miss sort of the quantitative right. aspect of it. Um, I yeah. sometimes have yearnings to do some research that involves writing down data. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can relate. I, I miss that too. Have you, you are working on a little research project you've, you've hinted at yeah. to me. I don't know if it's fair um, to talk about that here. Yeah, but. collaborating with uh, Dr. Kyle Harris in uh, Lynchburg, Virginia. Yeah. He's a Liberty professor. And um, it's really kind of nice because I don't really have the uh, manpower and the resources. And he has a, a good army of undergrads to draw from. Yeah. And uh, so I gave him a research idea. and. He, uh, in a sense, just, I gave him the big picture, broad strokes of this is the experimental design. This is what we're after. And then he executed it. So it's, it's, it's kind of fun seeing the research and the data results that they're collecting. And I didn't really do much work other than give him the, the hypothesis. And I love that collaborative aspect. You know, this one, this one isn't quite so much instrumentation. Uh, it was more of a, in thinking back about it, I, I, think our, I think our field bosses were training us a little bit. So when I, when I did my summer stint for USGS on the North Slope uh, with, with Susan. North Slope of Alaska. That's right. That's way up there. That's way up there. So the Colville River Delta, it's not pronounced Colville. I know the Colville, Washington. Um, Colville River, it drains the whole Brooks Range, basically. Right. And so it's a huge and, watershed. And draining. Draining the north side of the Brooks Range, which yeah. is the northern part of Alaska. Yep, flows north into the into the Arctic Ocean or or Beaufort Sea, and that'd be trippy being up there. Oh, it was so weird. It was the most <laughs> remote place I've ever been in my life, and I was there for like three and a half months. Wow! And so they flew us in a helicopter, and it was just us. Um, and our the couple that was the field biologist, um, John had actually been going through cancer treatment. And so uh, we went up there without them. We went up there on our own four field techs who'd never worked there before, but we, we'd been in some remote conditions and we had various skills and 
And so they trusted us to set up camp, and we did. And one of the things they wanted I mean, us were to you do- I mean, it was a summer. I this was a summer gig. How cold did it get at night up there? And so it, when they flew us there, it was still, the river hadn't broken up. It was still ice and snow covered. And so we were, we put, we dug out the Connex unit and set up the, the wooden platform uh, tents, metal frame kind of canvas tents. And there was a heater in there. Oh, good. And so we so got to stay warm. Like, we didn't have to, we didn't get totally tent, frigid. Tent, but like a yurt kind of It's kind of like a little mini yurt, looks like a Conestoga wagon. And once the, everything thawed, we got our own little individual regular camping tents to sleep in okay. once it warmed up. But one of the jobs they gave us, to, I think, to keep busy, but also uh, to, to just start working together as a team, we had to map Lapland Longspur uh, territories. And so these little tiny sparrow-like birds, they're called Longspurs because their back toe is incredibly long. They look like a regular sparrow, except they have, they have really beautiful kind of black and, and uh, brown and charcoal colored uh, facial patterns the males do. And these Lapland Longspurs, we had to map their territories just by watching them. And so first we had to identify different ones and, and ban them and, and distinguish between them. Um, but then part of that process is we were also doing a little bit of genetic analysis there. And so we had to take a little vial of blood from each of these individuals. Wow. So we had to open up the wings and identify that major arterial along the, along wow. the major wing bone. Guess it'd be akin to the humerus. Yeah. And then, and then draw out a little vial wow. of blood and put a, a dab of... There's not a whole lot of blood in those birds. Oh, so right. How small a vial? Very small. I would, I would say maybe to correct myself, it Two was mils. more like an ampule. Okay. So really a tiny amount of blood, just enough to maybe, probably not even a, a mil. mil. Yeah. A, a really like little. Like a hundred microliters or something. Like I that. don't remember. I, yeah. Exactly. Wow. So that was, that was part of, uh, I'd say it maybe fits into the category of instrumentation, collecting yeah. some yeah. type of data or observation uh, from these creatures. And I'd long to know what became of that data and I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what happened Well, there. the thing is, you might think this is all cool, especially if you're wanting to be a, you know. A biologist of some sort, but what what I want to wrap things up with is it's fun to take down data, it's fun to analyze it, but ultimately, from a dominion perspective, you might say, "Well, all I have to know is like what this bird is." It's like, well, in thinking of dominion in relationship to what people, what some people need to know about birds or reptiles or mammals or whatever we're studying is not, I mean, it, it can be knowledge for knowledge sake, right. sake, but it also is to learn more about the animal, its movement patterns, its breeding, when it breeds. Now, all of this is necessary f to exercise good dominion, right? because if you don't know anything about its population size or its movement patterns, then when people develop, we might not have any animosity to nature in and of itself, but if we don't know anything about what's out there, then when we blunder into a habitat and set up shop, we might not have any malice, malicious intent, but we might be adversely affecting them in a very bad way. Now, it's right. not to say that we can't do stuff. But it does mean that we should, we should know animals so that when we move in, we are doing everything we can uh, to mitigate, you know, 
adverse effects. Right, right. We want to be surgical in how we, when we develop, we want to be doing it in such a way that we, we respect what's going on. Yeah. Doesn't mean that certain things might get killed. Yes. We sometimes have to have a footprint right. in nature to put in a building. But, but if that, there's a chance of keeping that if, little wetland there yeah, and building if, around yeah, it. Building around it. Because we know that there are I leopard it, frogs there. I call it ecological circumspection. Yeah. It means you're circumspect, meaning you look around and you are circumspect with regard to the ecology. Yeah. And so you're doing stuff, but you're mindful. You love God's creation. And it involves knowing about animals, knowing about plants, and in a, in a lot of quantitative ways that a qualitative knowledge of the organism or the creature won't do. So, yeah, I wonder if Solomon, uh, how, what Solomon's best management practices were for building in yeah. his day. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he didn't he want to have about sound at the site of the temple, so they were they were definitely <laughs> reducing noise pollution <laughs> there. They did all of the chiseling, which required a lot of engineering to f- make sure that the stones fit, because they weren't going to chisel the stones, you know. A- anyway, but that really didn't have to do with the 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 life. But and you know, with the, the they did use the the Sidonians to, to get the timber from right. cedars of Lebanon. So we know that it's lawful to cut, but we also know that the Sidonians were good at it. They and were they, arborists. They were also, I'm sure, aware of making sure that this was sustainable. Right. That you just don't want to mow all the, these were slow growing trees. Right. And I don't think the Sidonians were just thinking, let's clear cut. Yeah. You know, we want to have, these wonderful cedars for timber in the long term. Yeah. And so I don't know. I'm just, I'm just speculating, but anytime someone is doing something, that's their livelihood. They want to make sure that this is a, a practice that can be carried on into perpetuity. Yeah. And, and so collecting data, measuring things about nature, lots of applicable uses. Mm hmm. And so whether it's just counting number of species uh, or individuals of each species at the bird feeder, which is one of the biggest data sets on the planet right, right now, yeah. uh, the, back, the great backyard bird count, yeah. um, there's some neat stuff that you can do around the house. And, and if you're interested in that kind of stuff, seeking out individuals in your, in your community, including state fish and game, or, or maybe a local university, or maybe a local, a local science teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Good stuff, Gordon. All right. Good chatting with you, sir. See you next time. See you next time. This episode has been brought to you by New St. Andrews College. Tyrants know education is warfare, and so should we. If you want your student armed for battle and equipped to fight tyranny, apply at nsa.edu slash fall 2022. That's nsa.edu slash fall 2022.